no matter what I had gone through growing up and even as a young lawyer, that the hurt that sucked, that was, whether it was rejection or failure, I would use that as a motivator to, and it really, I, I just, it would just piss me off. And I'd use that to, you know, work even harder. Welcome to the best of Q3 of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of the most impactful conversations over the past several months. Like, fuck you. I'm going to show you. Nothing's going to keep me down. There's nothing you can do to stop me. You could kill me. That's the only thing you can do. So if, if, if you can't kill me, you're never going to be able to stop me. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with the founder of Trial Lawyers for Justice, Nick Rowley, legendary civil rights attorney, Ben Crump, the co-founder of Simon Law Group and Justice HQ, Robert Simon, and renowned legal intake expert, Gary Falkowitz. Regardless of what industry you're in or what type of law firm you own, the first step to success is an immediate response time, right? Forget about quality, forget about experience, forget about how good you are as a lawyer. If someone is not picking up your call, immediately you start off on the wrong foot. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with Nick Rowley, one of the most accomplished trial attorneys of his generation, having won more than $1.5 billion in verdicts and settlements for victims and families across the country. During our conversation, I asked Nick to speak to the experiences that shaped him into becoming a champion for justice. We moved from Iowa. I was born and lived on a farm. And then there was a, a big change in the agricultural and, and livestock industry in the Midwest back in the late 70s, early 80s. My dad lost his job. You know, he worked as a farmhand and worked at a, at a meatpacking plant because that, you know, plant shut down with, with this crash that was going on. And so we moved to Iowa City and he went to college. He became a teacher. His first teaching job was Nogales, Arizona. So at the age of seven, we moved to a border town. I was the only white kid in my class. I was one of maybe three or four in my school. And I got to learn about racism on the, on the receiving end of it. I had the, the pulp beat out of me three, four days a week. I mean, beat up. I'd come home bloody. And it, it went on for, for a couple of years. You know, and even after I got to the point to where I would fight back with everything that I possibly had and I learned how to be a scrapper, I'd still get beat up. Those were formative years for me 
and I became a fighter. And no matter how hard I was hit or how bad I was knocked down and beaten, I would get back up with more energy and more rage than I had before. And that became the, the catalyst really for succeeding in life. And no matter what I had gone through growing up and even as a young lawyer, the, the hurt that sucked that was, whether it was rejection or failure, I would use that as a motivator to, and it really, I, I just, it would just piss me off. And I'd use that to, you know, work even harder. Like, fuck you. I'm going to show you. Nothing's going to keep me down. There's nothing you can do to stop me. You could kill me. That's the only thing you can do. So if, if, if you can't kill me, you're never going to be able to stop me. And then after, I'd say, 10 years of practicing law, I started to really look at, look at the success I had had and, and question, well, I've been, I've been successful. Could I be even more successful by taking a different approach, by not being so aggressive? Really um, shifting that anger to love. And that's really been my project over you know, the second half of my career as a lawyer, is to look inward when something you know, doesn't go right and accept responsibility for it rather than being pissed off about it. A lot of that has to do with how I want my children to grow up and how I want them to handle adversity. Not everybody can handle it the way that I did. You know, people that do handle it that way might end up behind bars. I, I was, you know, a real hothead for quite a while and a dangerous one at that. I'm very thankful to be where I am with the temper and the, you know, skill set that I formed over the years and the things that I'm, you know, capable of doing. I'll give you an example. First few years of practice, I, you know, I'm in court on a case and, and this lawyer was just rude, just awful, raising his voice, acting like a real tough guy. And, you know, we, we finished the, finished the hearing, whatever it is, we're, you know, getting ready for a jury trial. And, you know, we have words. I go into the elevator, you know, I'm, I'm going down to the first floor. He gets in the elevator with me and he comes up and he steps up to me, gets in my face and starts running his mouth. Within a, a split second, I grab that guy by the throat <laughs> and, you know, put him down on his knees. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm lucky that, you know, I didn't get in major trouble for that. He stepped up to me. And my experience in life was if someone's getting that close to you, you need to take control of the situation. By the time I, you know, had him by the throat, he was a whole different person, you know, and then he was the victim. And I can't believe you do that, you, you know, I said, oh, you know, what's up, pal? You know, you're, you're a tough guy. That's all right, tough guy. Don't step up to a person like that if you don't get in their personal space. And as far as I, I was concerned, you're going to take a swing at me. Now, how, how do I handle a situation like that? Fast forward 10 years, I'm in a jury trial up in Bakersfield, California, and there's a lawyer by the name of Chuck Custer. Chuck Custer. I've never dealt with a person like that. I really, in my entire career, such a loud mouth. Hit him for a, a $31.6 million record-setting verdict. But throughout the whole trial, I mean, the guy would just run his mouth and say stuff to me and you know, I, it's getting really close to, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock that guy out. I'm going to, you know, meet me out in the parking lot or, or out on a country road or something. We can figure this thing out. But instead, 
you know, he made a comment about my suit. So every day I just walk up to Chuck and, and say, Chuck, um, how does this outfit look? Do you like this one? Kind of like, you know, the Dr. Seuss book, do you like my hat? I'd say, I, I put this one on for you today. You know, and the, the more hot headed he'd get, just the nicer and calmer I'd get. And I've learned how to deal with things that way instead of the aggressive way. And, or just understanding that, you know what, um, a lawyer like that is probably really scared. He's really scared that he's gonna get hit with a big verdict and then have the insurance company show up and take all of his files. Yeah, that's scary. He's a human being. He's got, got a family and mouths to feed and he's got an ego and you know, a reputation. He's not happy that insurance companies put him here and you know, where he has to try this case and, and take a big hit. So he's angry about it and he wants to take that anger out on me. I, okay, I understand that. I'm not gonna let that make me angry. There's so much more power in that than responding with anger and rage. But it took me years to, to learn that. And the, you asked about um, you know, lessons that I've learned and there's, there is one trial that, that sticks out in my mind and it's a MedMal case that I should have won. And in fact, the, the jury came back and answered question number one, yes, which was, was the doctor negligent? And then it was a no on causation. I know I lost that case because I was so pissed off at the defendant physician and I lost my cool in trial. I went after that guy. By the time I was done cross-examining him, I mean, there was blood all over the courtroom. You know, I had beheaded him. I was holding his head and, you know, showing his head, his, you know, flailing body. And it was, it was brutal. And I looked over at the jury and, huh. and they were just, in shock. I lost my connection with the jury. I lost my credibility. There's a case, um, I hadn't lost a, a trial in over eight years. And I tried a med mal case in a place where, you know, people said you could never win a med mal case. And I did not win. The jury was out for 11 hours. We got defense. And I look back and I, I, I've watched the footage on CBN and I know exactly where I failed and where I could have won that case and where I lost it. At least that's my belief. That, that's what I'm putting it on, on me. And it was, you know, getting into it with the doctor again. You know, the judge wouldn't make him answer any questions. I lost my cool. And there were a couple other things in that trial, you know, so I, I beat myself up about that for months. Or I could just say, you know, I mean, it's Kalispell, Montana. No one's ever won a bet now case up there. I mean, shit, it was a tough case. Causation was tough. You know, I mean, the doctors were really likable. You know, it was a tough jury. They're the major employer in town. In fact, they're the largest employers who I'm suing. Every one of the jurors was a patient of the defendants. You know, I, I could come up with all these excuses, but that doesn't fly because I've won that case over and over and over again throughout my career by not making the mistakes that I made in this trial. I want to kind of go on, on the opposite because I, I heard you talk about a trial that you were particularly proud of. And, and when I heard about this, it, it sounded like something straight out of a movie. Uh, and if this is all, already like a script that they're shopping around, it probably should be. I'd love for our listeners to hear about the case you tried against Costco in, in Santa Monica. Oh boy. So there was a lawyer, you know, in my firm who, who had a, a breakdown. It was emotional. It had to do with, um, with substance and I got a call on Sunday night from that lawyer who I love, who's family to me, and said, I, I can't do this trial. I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, and he told me what was going on. I said, all right, meet me at the courthouse. I'll be there in the morning. 
we'll get this case continued. And this man was emaciated. It looked like he had just spent two weeks in a crack house not eating. You know, he had not, that wasn't the issue. Uh, he was addicted to Adderall. He'd been on Adderall during law school and now had, you know, had gone like four or five days without sleep, was actually hallucinating and, and it was really bad. So he had to go into detox, but he was, he was addicted to Adderall, which is methamphetamine. That's, that's what it is. And I'd never seen anything like it. So we chatted for, for a minute in person and I said, you need to leave. You need, you need to get out of here. And we got him into sober living that day, into detox and sober living. But I didn't want him to be there and have that on the record, you know, is the reason for the continuance. Because that would just be really bad. It would be bad for his career. I mean, he could end up in trouble with the, with the state bar. So I said, just get out of here and I'm going to tell the judge that we need a continuance, that you're not available, that there are some health issues, which is true, and that you're actually being, being admitted. I'm gonna be very, very general, very vague. I pulled the defense lawyer aside. I said, listen, um, you know, do me a solid here. Let's step and continue the trial, pick a new date. And Costco's lawyer looked at me and he kind of smiled. He said, well, jury's being called in. We did motions in limine last Friday. As far as I'm concerned, um, we're going to trial. But if you want to dismiss the case for a waiver of costs, maybe I can, you know, talk Costco into that and not, you know, going against your client to seek costs, you know, for this frivolous lawsuit that she's brought. <clears throat> At that point, I, the version of me that has got me to where I am kicked in and I thought about it and the jury consultant was there. I pulled him aside and said, hey, tell me about this case. Give me the scoop. Told me about the case. I said, all right. I found out what the witnesses were. Talked to the client, met her for the first time that morning and just asked her some questions. And I said, you know, um, so-and-so isn't available to try your case. They're not willing to continue it. I don't know what the judge is going to do, but I can try the case. I might lose, but, but I'll do it. She goes, yeah, I, I want you to try the case. I know who you are. I, I truly didn't think I was going to win the case, but I went up to the defense lawyer. I said, listen, can we continue this? I'm, I'm going to ask you and I'm going to say, please, can we please? And I, I, don't, I don't ask people for things very often. It's very rare that I say, will you please do this for me? He looks at me, he goes, waiver of costs. I said, okay. Oh, and he knew a little bit of what was going on with the lawyer. And so he goes, well, I'm gonna bring that up to the judge and put it on the record. So I looked at him, I said, all right, pal, and we're gonna have ourselves a jury trial. And they called in the jury and introduced myself to the judge. I did a mini opening statement, you know, told the jury, I said, I said, listen, um, the damages in this case are, you know, more than a million dollars. It's the injuries are very, very serious, but before we get there, we have to prove that Costco is at fault. And one of three things is gonna happen. First thing that might happen is we put on our case, Costco puts on their case. You come back and you say, there's no case here. Costco didn't do anything wrong. I mean, this lady, she's overweight and she wasn't paying attention. She you know, stepped off the curb, she fell, she injured herself through her own negligence. This is, this is a lawsuit that you know, shouldn't even be brought. And if that's the case, then she ends up with zero. 
Another thing that might happen is you listen to the evidence from both sides. You say, you know, this is a case of shared responsibility. She, she should have been paying better attention, taking better care of herself. She's at fault. But also, Costco's at fault too. Costco bears some responsibility here and should be held responsible for contributing to these injuries because Costco was negligent and there was a dangerous condition you know, on its property. The third thing that might happen, and I believe the evidence is gonna show it's either number two or number three. The third thing is that you listen to all the evidence. You see that Costco is not accepting any responsibility whatsoever. And Costco was negligent. Costco was negligent. Costco's at fault 100% for injuring this woman and changing her life. But whichever one, you know, you decide the damages are worth more than a million dollars. But we have to get there first. That was, that was pr pretty much my, my mini opening statement and my jury selection was, you know, we've got, you know, an all white jury here and I've got a large overweight black woman. Would anyone here, if the roles were reversed, be a, be a bit afraid if you were her? I said, yeah. So we started talking about that. Before our jury selection wasn't very long, I asked him, I said, well, will we all promise to, to value her case the same way you would if she was a white woman and a school teacher? And they all, they all did. And then we, we tried the case and I tried it in a day and a half and the verdict was, was 1.8 million, 100% on Costco. And they paid it. That's a, that's a case I'm pretty proud of because it's one that I don't, the verdict wouldn't have been anywhere near that. And I was able to come in and, and take my skill set that I developed over the years for this woman who was badly hurt and it was Costco's fault, you know, and it was a zero offer case. And then they offered zero after trial and tried to get a new trial. The judge didn't give it to him. They had to pay every penny. And I got, and that money changed her life. So it's not one of my eight figure verdicts or hundred plus million dollar verdicts that it's a $1.8 million verdict that was really awesome. Oh, and, and I completely waived medical bills too, because that, that would have, you know, kept the verdict low. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Ben Crump, who's represented the victims of many of the most high-profile lawsuits in modern history, including Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. As a result of his notoriety, influence, and impact, Ben has earned a spot on the Time 100, Time Magazine's annual list of the 100 most influential people, and he was recently featured in the Netflix documentary, Civil. My mission is to try to make sure marginalized People, especially people of color, especially black people, have an equal opportunity at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in fighting for these equal opportunities and equal chance at justice, you understand that you have to sacrifice a lot. And they tell me to stop saying this, but I always feel like I'm running out of time. We can't keep up with how many marginalized people of color are killed unjustly by the people who are supposed to protect and serve them, by the people who are supposed to care. And Mike, as you know, you watch the evening news, you see there's another one. Every time you think that you're making progress. Yeah, well, I mean, are there times where you feel like the more you help, the more, it's sometimes more challenge it creates just nationwide, maybe not because of your hand, but ultimately because of just this problem continues to scale. I always remain optimistic, Michael. It's incremental progress. You know, we've been fighting racism and discrimination in America 
from the inception of the country being founded. Every day, we're going to continue to hold a mirror to America's face to say we're better than this America. We're better than the video of George Floyd being tortured to death. We're better than this America where Maude Aubrey was lynched for jogging while black. Uh, not in 1940, not in 1950, but in 2020, in our day. And so, and that's just one year in 2020. But with all that said, we have seen great progress. I mean, the officers who killed George Floyd was prosecuted. The officers who killed Lamar Opry was prosecuted. Normally, there's no accountability when they kill black people unjustly, as long as, you know, the Supreme Court and everybody else says, well, qualified immunity, you don't get civil justice. And then because of Section 242, you don't get any criminal accountability. So it's almost as if the black life didn't matter at all. And that's why we fight to say black lives do matter because, you know, when you look at the reality of our justice system, it doesn't based on the outcomes. And I'll ask this, well, it's probably a simple question, maybe a complex answer, but just through all your experience, what do you believe is the root of the issue? Like, where does it really begin? It is a simple question, but a complex answer. We have to make America believe in the Declaration of Independence. When I'm picking a jury in a courtroom, I literally go one by one and I tell the jury, I know that you can recite the Declaration of Independence, but do you really believe it when you say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equally, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that amongst them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And I would ask them, and I would say, you know, do you believe it? And then the other side would object, and the judge would say, well, move on, Attorney Crump. And I, I say, no, well, Judge, if they won't agree that this black person who was killed unjustly has the same equal rights as the white police officer or black police officer or Hispanic police officer who killed them, then this case is lost before we began. And I, I make a big deal about it because really we don't have a chance if they won't see these black people as equal to these white people in most of the instances. And that's why you see this happening over and over again. And it's not just with police because police are lo the low people on the pole. It is the criminal justice system itself Worse than how they killed Trayvon Martin. Worse than how they killed Michael Brown and Ferguson when we were talking about hands up, don't shoot. Worse than how they killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland on the playground. Worse than how they killed Eric Gardner. I mean, the list can go on and on, but worse than how they killed George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Maude Aubrey, is how they kill young people of color, especially black people in every city, in every state, in every courtroom, in every day in America with these trumped up felony convictions based on bias, racism, and discrimination. You can have little white boys and girls who have similar fact patterns, 
to little black boys and girls. And you don't take Ben Crump's word for it. Go sit in the back of any courtroom in America and you just watch how the young white people get a slap on the wrist. But then you have the young black people never get the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of consideration, the benefit of possibility. They're taken over to the corner of the courtroom, they're fingerprinted, and they are handcuffed and charged with a trumped-up felony conviction. It's so bad, Michael, that in my home state of Florida and states like Tennessee and many of the other states around the country, they say one out of every five black men would be a convicted felon. And they say if that trend continues in the next 25 years, every one out of three black men in America will be a convicted felon. I want you to imagine that you are a parent of a black son. And I want you to imagine that you have a black male nephew. And I want you to imagine that you have a black male cousin. And I want you to imagine that these three little black boys are around the age of six, seven, eight years old. And in your minds, I just imagine them at play like most children do. And as you observe them, try to figure out in the next 10 to 20 years which one of those little boys are going to end up as a convicted felon who has your blood running through their veins and end up living a life as a second-class citizen because they are forced to wear this convicted felon label like a cross on their back forever. Every time you punch their name into a computer, the first thing that comes up is that they're a convicted felon. And so they are forever reminded that you are a person who we have written off in my own family. There are people who are have been branded as a convicted felon. And I always try to remind them that now, we still believe that you have redeeming qualities. We still believe that you can be a constructive citizen in society. We still believe you're one of the best things that your mother and father gave to the world. We still believe that God has a plan for you. We still believe in you. And we have to constantly remind them of that because if we don't, I believe that we will have an entire generation of young black people who are racist criminal justice system has written off as being undeserving of equality. I have to ask through your experience, like how do you remain optimistic every time you see another situation? And, and this is behind the cameras. This is when you're sitting with the families, you know, they, they've lost their son or daughter. Like, I mean, you know, you're doing that day after day after day. The reason I do remain optimistic is twofold. You know, I grew up in the government housing projects. Single mother raised me and my two little brothers. The statistics said that, hey, you're going to end up in a minimum wage job, or you're going to end up in prison, or you're going to end up dead. That's what the statistics said about me and every other little black boy 
growing up in Lumberton, North Carolina, and it was a very depressed community. But here I am. And so that tells you there's always hope. There's always a possibility. And so I, I think about that, and I think about my daughter and my two nephews who we uh, raised as our own, and I look at them, and I see all the optimism in their eyes and the hope, and I, I know that we can give them a better world, a better America, and that gives me hope. But the probably the more honest reason why I have hope is not based on me at all. It is based on what they tried to teach us in first year law school about precedent, that everything must be based on precedent. And I'm sure many of the listeners will remember first year law school where they were like, well, we don't care what you think, you got to base it on precedent. And because we have to have the rulings of today be based on the precedent and connected to the rulings of the past, so it can have a lot of logical connection to the rulings that we're gonna have for the future. So they kept beating us across the head. Everything is precedent, precedent, precedent. Uh, But I didn't accept that now, Michael, because I understood if what they said were true, I would still be a slave because the precedent set by the United States Supreme Court was that slavery was legal. But I did understand, even though I disagree with them, what they were trying to teach us about precedent. And that was based on precedent, it's a likely indicator of what is to happen in the future. And so I think about the precedent of black people in America. I think about how at the founding of this country, we were labeled three-fifths of a human being of a citizen, and yet we overcame that. I think about the precedent of the Middle Passage. Then I think of the precedent of the United States Supreme Court decision in Dred Scott, where they said there were no rights that a black man had that a white man was bound to respect. Well, we overcame that after the Civil War and Reconstruction and the carpetbaggers and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, the Supreme Court decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, separate but equal when it was anything but equal. And, you know, we overcame all of those poll taxes and all the other things and the impediments to equality. We overcame that. Then I think about the precedent of how black people overcame Jim Crow in the early 1900s and then in the mid-1900s, in the 40s, 50s, all the way up to today. So what that tells me, Michael, is based on the precedent of black people in America that whatever the enemies of equality throw at us, we're going to overcome it. We're going to be all right. And that's what gives me encouragement. I know there's nothing that they can do to stop us from overcoming the discrimination, the bias, and the racism. 
Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with Robert Simon, the co-founder of Simon Law Group and Justice HQ. He credits his success to his relentless authenticity and focus on collaboration versus competition. Whether you're a superhero or a super lawyer, we all have our origin story. So what's his? I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. My When I was 11, my uncle, well, he's actually my great uncle, but my, I have a big Irish Catholic family. So my grandmother's one of the oldest. He's one of the youngest, but he's my dad's age. So he's like my uncle, but really my great uncle, hit by a drunk driver, is paralyzed. And we all come from very blue collar, working class Pittsburgh. I saw his lawyer have to fight for him. They said he was unbelted. It was his fault, all this shit. They settled in the middle of trial and ended up taking care of not only him, but my cousins and gave him quality of life. So I always was inspired by that, knew I wanted to like pursue that path. So everything I did was kind of leading up to that. Like I went from Pittsburgh to then DC, I went for undergrad, did criminal justice, and then figured out where I wanted to live and went to law school there. And I was like, fuck, I want to live where it looks like every day is a beer commercial. And that's California. So went out to Pepperdine, never left. So I've been in Southern California, live in Manhattan Beach now and started rather than taking that big law job they were going to pay me like 150 grand a year because i did well in law school i went and worked for 55 grand a year a third of what i killed and by year two or three was making more than all my friends but i was committed to this passion of trying cases for the injured folk networking hustling my ass off and then started my own firm after four years three years and off we go You've described law school as coming pretty easy for you, right? Almost to the extent that you're like, you're sitting in the back of the room playing online poker and then you're still making great grades. <laughs> was that always the case? Like, wh- where was the struggle? That's what I want to hear about. College was tough because we couldn't, my brother and I couldn't really want to afford it. My dad took out a lot of union loans to get us through there because it was expensive. We had some scholarships, but we were working two or three jobs all the way through college, eating ramen noodles and eggs going on those dollar McDonald's menus, buying like 10 cheeseburgers, keeping them in a little mini fridge, that kind of stuff, eating pizza out of trash. You know, I'm not too proud. I still kind of do that, right? Somebody throws something out a little too early. But coming out to law school, why, I mean, I didn't know you knew all this, but it was kind of easier for me. And this was the reason why I wasn't happy. The first year of law school, you have to sign a contract with most law schools say you don't work anywhere else. You have to concentrate on this first year. And I was like, it was the first time in my life where I didn't have like two or three jobs, I can concentrate on one thing. And I was like, this is fucking easy. Like I'm not playing sports. I'm just doing time management. I was in the best shape of my life because I had like time to work out and do things. I was like, this is pretty easy. So I did really well my first year. But I think the this, this struggle comes where the second struggle came was when I went out on my own. Like I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't come from a lot of money. I didn't take out any loans. It was, you know, really had to strive that business. If you're a personal injury, you sign up a case, you're not going to get paid for sometimes three, four years if you're, if you're going the distance on it. So there was times, you know, there was a lot of ebb and flow where we just take my brother and I took huge chances and like, fuck it, let's just rent this big office building, sublet it out and grow into it. That's just, we think we can make it work. What's the worst thing could happen? Like we can go work for another firm anytime we want. Another big struggle is about three or four years in after I had hit a few big verdicts, but they were on appeal. But we had all these cases come through the door because people wanted me to try their cases. We couldn't say no to them. But we were, my brother and I literally, I think for one or two years, we didn't take any money. Like we had no money coming in because we we're just waiting. It was on appeal, waiting to get paid. And we wanted to invest the money that came in into other things by to get employees and things. So that's where, and then after one case paid on appeal and the next one did, and then all the, then that crest of that wave hit and it's been fucking fantastic ever since. But man, you just got to believe it and, and go for it. Well, yeah. And I mean, it, as you described, you didn't really have anything to lose at that point. How, how were you essentially acquiring cases then versus now? 
never done SEO, pay-per-click, any case acquisition, anything like that. Back in the day, it was just literally ground and pound grassroots marketing where I was going to swap meets. My Spanish is pretty good. I'd just be helping people with general shit. I was going to chiropractor's office saying, I can refer you cases. Do you have anything? Physical therapists going to make friends with doctors at trauma centers and just seeing if you know they had any referral sources. I had paid someone like 12 bucks an hour back in the day just to get an Excel spreadsheet and start entering in the emails of every single person that I went to law school with. Because I got, my law school gave me the list. You can go on the State Bar website, find the emails. And I just started doing like email campaigns. I had to go to messaging boards. Like, hey, I'll pay you a referral fee. Say, open my own shop. And I'm still getting cases from people I went to law school with that I'm friends with still. Going to like messaging boards of other listservs and things, just answering people's questions. And every once in a while, they would send me something. It's like a 24-hour job, you know, and it was half my time as starting my firm and leading up to it was spent marketing. And by marketing, it was just on the streets, handing out business cards, giving people my cell phone numbers, texting them, giving people a call, letting them know, reminding them that I'm there. And I remember one of the first big cases I had early on, I settled for five million bucks. And the reason I got that case is because I helped out. It was a wrongful death case. The person that had passed, I had helped out their uncle for free, just on like a property damage case, then a big injury. I said, I'll take care of it for you. And then he called whenever this happened to his nephew and yeah, I was there the next day. But I had myself putting that myself in that position by helping people out for free and doing the right thing. I preached to a lot of people starting their firm. Your time is free. You just got to use it wisely. So get out and do it. What was driving you during that time? Because I'm, I'm curious, like, what's the origin of the hustle? Because people work hard. I, I don't imagine there's going to be the majority of people listening are lazy by any means, but you're hitting the streets, you're doing the ground and pound right out of the gate. What's the origin of that? Why do you think you were the way you were? There's that one book that John Morgan wrote, You Can't Teach Hungry. And I remember reading it back in the day and Brian Panch actually gave me a copy and he said, you need to read this book. This is a long time ago. And I remember reading, said, shit, this resonates with me because like you either have this insatiable appetite or you don't. And I think it's something that you grow You grow up with a chip on your shoulder or you grow up that you have something to prove, right? And I came from a very working class family, you know, public high school, and I always felt like we could do better. I always wanted to start companies, do things with my family to work together. My dream is to have this massive compound where we're all together and hanging out all the time, whatever. Not the Michael Jackson compound, but it was always like, dude, like, I could do better than this. I always wanted to take care of my family. That was always a big driving force for me, even to this day. Like, I will not stop pushing forward until all of my family is significantly taken care of because everybody either, we all work together at my law firm or work together at Justice HQ. And that's a big driving force for me. It's like, until we can all have, until everybody, not just me, but every single member of my family have independent financial success and that qualify different things for different people. Mine means if you can be so financially independent that you can have stress-free free free time with your family as often as possible, then you've made it. It doesn't matter if that's a few million, a few hundred thousand, a few billion. If you can do that and do it well, you've won. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but when you think about all this, right, you think about the Simon Law Group, you've got the family together. Family's obviously very important to you. But then you look at the other things that you're involved with between Justice HQ, Law de Gras, and so on. You love creating communities. You love bringing people together. Have Have you thought about kind of the parallels between all those? I mean, shit, I never thought of it like that. I try to make everybody around me very successful, like almost to a fault. Like sometimes my wife's like, why do you help all these people out? I was like, well, I just, they're friends of mine. Like I want their businesses to succeed. And sometimes I joke around, I was like, I just want other people to, you know, be able to afford the fucking vacations we take and go together. But I really like helping all of my circle of friends intertwine all my other circle of friends professionally. Like all my best friends, we all work together at our firm. All this, all the lawyers we work with, 
we all live close to each other. We hang out constantly. We all have little kids. I mean, we're together all the time. But all of you, my friend, are my best friends. If you had asked me, my best friend, there's probably like 40 I would list. Same thing with Lottie Gras. Same thing with Justice HQ is I just like to help the best people come together and have the most fun. And we have this one, like I made up this one phrase called no crooks, no creeps. Because I think if you get those people out of your life, people that are like sucks on your time, your drain, and just bad people to be around, you'll just be a happier person. So if you have communities around you that don't strive off of those things, then you'll be cool. And speaking of communities, so I know we mentioned Justice HQ. For people who are listening that may not be familiar with that, how, how would you describe what that is? So Justice HQ is a community. It's a membership-based, so you have to be attorneys that are approved to come in. So everybody's an attorney. Everybody's a consumer-based attorney in some form or fashion. And their membership comes with their office-based solutions. So all of our office spaces have 24-7 access to it. We have people help their media. Um, we have people start their firms through it. We have like business developmental stuff. There's discounts to vendors, a lot of how-to stuff. We have people, I try to give them a platform too. Through Just HQ, you can do your own podcast, your own speaking engagements to show that they're an expert in what they do. Because again, they've got either recruited or approved to get a membership in a Justice HQ. So it has that expert network built into it. We have a case exchange where people are, my goal is with Justice HQ is to get the best cases to the best people in that specialty and then have a community around them to be able to mentor them. We have big lawyers like myself, Gary Dorda, Gosh Mompour, Brett Schreiber, that are very well-known lawyers that help mentor them professionally and also, you know, socially as well, but with their cases. So we have people come in every couple of days, they roundtable their cases. And these are, that's their cases, but the whole community is helping them get better. So it's to have that support in just a fucking bigger scale. So now that we've been able to do that, like this is a scalable system. You just have to make sure that the right people, the right community is in there. Because if you have one bad seed that just is a drain on everybody, it, it fucks it up. So we've been very blessed to get the right people in and right people involved. And it is... We can't expand fast enough, but, you know, that's a tertiary problem at this point. Have you had to kick anybody out? Yes. <laughs> We've had to kick people out. There's been people that many people have gotten rejected. Because you seem like a pretty easygoing, laid-back guy. So that when it gets to the point of, like, you got to go, what, what are they doing? Okay, so... First of all, it's not my call. So we've developed a membership committee and it's other people that are members, a lot of people that are founding members. There is a screening process, first of all. They come through, they interview, and people expect a certain quality of lawyer because if people are outsourcing their work to this expert network, you have to have a good quality type of lawyer. The people that aren't able to be involved anymore are folks that did things like trying to do unethical fee splits or that are trying to screw over other people, even within the own community, off of cases and things like this. And that's not something that we preach or condone. You know, we're in this ecosystem, right? And better be a low ecosystem where we're all doing these things together. And if somebody's not doing things that are that are only good for them and trying to stamp over other people in the community, that just doesn't work. That doesn't jive, that doesn't fly. That's not how I built my success. And most people probably like you have not built their success on stepping on or over people, especially whenever they're in the same community. It just doesn't work that way. So if, if that happens, and there's complaints from other members, you're gone. I mean, that's just the way that it works. So like the quality of lawyers always been there, especially with people getting mentored around them. But it's always been people doing just fucked up shit on the side, man. Just can't be doing it. The human condition is, is so interesting to me because I, I find that usually what, what leads to those situations is typically greed to some extent. But ironically, the thing that typically leads to a lot of wealth is very much is abundance mindset and actually helping others succeed. And, and the ones that actually help, you know, the most people succeed tend to be the most financially successful. But it's true, dude, right? I mean, like the wealthiest people that I know 
are the people that are the most giving with, with their time or helping others. Because I, I do believe in karma. It's some form or fashion, like it, it all comes back. And like my dad taught me this as an early age. He's like, just be nice to everybody. There's no reason to be an asshole. Like I judge people now, if we're going out to dinner or lunch, how nice they are to the staff, right? If they say thank you or please or, or just show a little human interest in people, that's how I judge it. That's how I judge folks. And if people think they're better than anybody, that's not somebody I want to be around. Like you, you should never, ever, I don't care your level of success. We're all human beings. We're all on this planet. Like we're sharing it together. Just, just be cool. And if you're cool and putting out good energy, everybody else will be too. So yeah, man, that's my story. and I'm sticking to it. We close out this episode by looking back at my conversation with renowned legal intake expert, Gary Falkowitz. Not only has Gary advised some of the most successful law firms across America on how to improve their intake process and sign more cases, he's also the author of The Complete Guide to Law Firm Intake, Powerful Strategies to Maximize Retention and Increase Revenue. I asked Gary to speak to his passion for intake and its impact on his career evolution as an attorney. If you asked me in law school, I'd have no idea what you were talking about right now. I have a knack and a passion for wanting to find the inefficiencies and then wanting to find the solutions. And intake to me was one of those glaring inefficiencies where law firms started making decisions unilaterally about how to handle their leads. And that would have a significant impact. When you started to hear about what some of these cases could be worth and how much it cost for the law firm to acquire just that lead, it was head scratching for me to understand why law firms gave up so quickly. Why did we give up on a lead if they reached out to us? I always, whenever I talk to a law firm, I always say, here you are a law firm marketing for this type of client. And then this type of client, exactly the one you're marketing for reaches out to you. Why are we not signing 100% of those? How is it possible we're not signing 100% of the people that meet our criteria and reach out to us? Yet here we are living in the world in our industry where on average, more than 40% of the people that we want that reach out to us, don't sign with us. It's crazy. So I want to dig into that because if you speak to a lot of law firm owners, they'll say that they sign 100% of the cases that they want. So where's the disparity? Yeah, uh, I've heard that many times. Respectfully, I don't think they're very much on top of what's going on at the front end of their business. I think they're getting certain metrics shared with them. I think they're signing cases. I think they're making a lot of money. And for many people, that's good enough. They don't want to know the analogy. They don't want to know how much they weigh. So they're not going on a scale. All they know is that they're getting up in the morning, they're exercising and things are going great. And that's good enough. The reality is when you start to dig in, when you start to open up the hood and you realize that maybe you quit too soon on your follow-up, or maybe you had people who called you, but you missed their call. Or maybe a claimant reached out to another law firm. And now your metrics don't consider the fact that a lead reached out to you, went elsewhere, but because you aren't fast enough, or because you didn't ask the right questions, or because your staff didn't convey the, the appropriate communication, that you lost that case, they're going to put that to the side. That's not a wanted case, you know, however they want to define it. So I think it's a matter of people looking in the mirror, right? Every successful business owner really does want to know where are my inefficiencies? Where are my problems? How can I fix that? And I think if the law firms that I've met with, that I've worked with, are the ones that are honest with themselves. And I've had many law firms reach out to me and say, Gary, I think I'm doing a great job. I think I'm doing an excellent job. 
but I want to bring you in to confirm that for me. I love that. That's great. Let me come in there. Let me see if I get, let me see if you're right. And if you're right, I'm going to shake your hand and say, excellent job. Keep doing what you're doing. But if you're wrong, the opportunity cost is tremendous, right? Because now you're looking at the potential of an increase of what, 5, 10, 15% more signed cases. So I'd look at it just as these are lawyers that, again, Michael, they didn't go to business school. I didn't go to business school either. And they were taught to provide a service that was needed. And they were never taught how to run a business. They're improvising that. We're all improvising that. And they're sort of a couple steps behind because they're lawyers first and they're businessmen or businesswomen second. And from your experience, I mean, particularly on the on the intake front, where, where do you find are the greatest drop-off points, the greatest friction points? Like where, where are the, the pain points that happen that in some cases, I guess, firm owners know about, but in many cases, like they don't even know that this is happening and this is, you know, should be concerning for them. Yeah, I think it's something that we, we're we not really talking about a lot right now. Um, there are a few, a few points that stand out for me. Uh, one is abandonment rate. I think that on average, law firms are losing up to 10%, sometimes more, of their leads because they don't pick up their phones timely. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about all hours of the day, whether it's nine to five, whether it's 11 o'clock at night, whether it's 8 a.m. Sunday morning. And I think right now we're in a state where law firms are still trying to figure out. They're like, it's almost like they're running around. How do I do this? How do I, okay, this weekend you're on call. Okay, this weekend I got I got the call center, but if, but if it's a good case, you have to be on call. Okay, if a web lead comes in, you gotta make sure you find somebody. If you're on vacation, find someone else. And it's, it's still happening for some of the most successful personal injury law firms you know, out there that it's not this consistent, uh, reliable approach that they're using. That is a major, uh, issue in the industry. Another major issue from an intake standpoint is we give up too soon. Whether we're not, not responding fast enough or not uh, following up for a long enough period of time. I like to use this example. If I have to go to the gym, and I do, I'm a little bit overweight, I gotta get back in shape. But if I wanted to go to the gym and there's a gym down the block from me, and I walk into that gym and I check out the equipment and I get to know their employees and I feel really good about it. And I walk out of that gym because I haven't signed anything yet. I still need that gym. I still need a gym membership, even after I leave. So how dare that gym not follow up with me? Just because I left and I wasn't prepared to sign doesn't mean I don't need a gym anymore. It just means I wasn't ready at that moment. And if you're a good salesperson, if you're a good intake person, you're gonna do an excellent job at conveying persuasive communication as to how you can help. You're gonna follow up me, you're gonna text me, you're gonna call me, you're gonna say we can still help, you're gonna tell me what the deal is, what the benefits are. And if, as a gym, if you said, ah, that guy doesn't want the gym. No, no, that guy, he can use the gym and he, can, he should use our gym. And let's make sure he knows that. And I think sometimes we forget about that. If someone needs a personal injury lawyer, they need you whether they sign on the first day or the seventh day. There was a word that you used when we were talking about intake and you're saying sales and salespeople. And I think sometimes people would, might hear that and think, well, what do you mean sales? And like, you know, they kind of have an aversion to the word. What are your thoughts in, in regards to like the importance of you know, being really trained on sales that relates to intake? I was one of those people. I had an aversion to the term sales early on and for quite some time, actually. What I, the conclusion I came to there is that the industry has become saturated with saturation comes deep competition. With deep competition requires sales skills. You need to be able to sell your services effectively, even to those folks 
that reach out to you. Now, this is not outbound sales. This is not cold calling sales. We can't do that. But if somebody calls up, another word for sales in our industry is reassurance. What type of reassurance are you giving them? This is someone who called up and said, hey, I saw your commercial. I was in an accident. I had to go to the hospital. Can you help me? Well, how we answer that question might dictate whether this person becomes a client or not. If we go, oh, yeah, we can help. And it stops there. We start asking some simple questions. I have not been persuaded that you're the right firm for me. I have three others I can call like this. But if I can go, well, Mrs. Johnson, I am so sorry to hear about what happened. We handle car accident cases with injuries like yours every single day. Of course we can help. First of all, tell me how you're feeling. Whoa, this person cares about me and they provided reassurance. And they told me that, you know, they're gonna ask some pieces of information from me that's gonna help them. So I think it's really important that we train our team to understand that there is some sales to this because you're not the only game in town. You know, I like to, in thinking about this podcast, I kept coming back to this idea that lawyers think of themselves often, not every lawyer, as that old school lawyer in the age where there's only one lawyer in the neighborhood and he's right down the block and he's got that, that corner location with the hanging you know, sign. It's not like that anymore. I mean, you see the commercials, 30% of the commercials, I'm making that number up, but it seems like it, are about personal injury lawyers. We need to appreciate that we are just a commodity. And if we don't respond appropriately, I mean, both in time and in quality, then we're, we lose. You're a sports guy like me, Michael. I hate losing, right? And when it's my fault, when I lose because it's my fault, that's the worst feeling in the world, especially when it's due to lack of preparation. That's where I'm at. And speaking of which, you know, when we talk about where a lot of firms are losing, particularly on the intake front, I guess if you could speak to the importance of really being 24 7, 365, because calls come in at any hour and not always during business hours. So I've probably listened to uh, just thousands of phone calls on behalf of law firms nationwide. I can tell you firsthand, you cannot predict when a potential claimant is going to call you. Quite often, you'll get them at the scene of the, they will call at the scene of the accident. They will literally call, hey, I just got to an accident. The police are on their way. My shoulder is killing me right now. Is this, did I do the right thing by calling you? Remember, this is for 99% of the people in this world, A, they'll never need a personal injury lawyer. And the other 1% that do may only need it once in their lives, right? So they've never had this conversation before. You'll get these calls 24 seven. You know, if anyone thinks that this is a nine to five business, I'm telling you, they're, they're setting themselves up for failure. When you're creating a law firm, you must be open 24-7. When you go to your website, it should never say closed. It should never say Monday through Friday, nine to five. It is open 24-7, which is why we have solutions 24-7. And I'm not saying about having your people, hey, I need you to work tonight from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Please don't sleep, right? That's obviously unreasonable. And I understand that there are, listen, I have an outsourced option, right? We created ICE, which is uh, an outsourced solution for inbound phone calls. I think that this is a problem in the industry right now. I think we have to start digging a little bit deeper about how important response time is, regardless of the day, regardless of the time. I'm getting very frustrated with our industry right now that we think we have the luxury of time. And I want everyone who's listening to this, regardless of what industry you're in or what type of law firm you own, the first step to success is an immediate response time. 
If you cannot be fast in your response time, you're starting behind the eight ball. You're starting a couple of steps back. Ask yourself how long you're willing to wait on their phone, right? Forget about quality. Forget about experience. Forget about how good you are as a lawyer. If someone is not picking up your call, immediately you start off on the wrong foot. I want to give a huge thank you to every single guest who's joined me so far on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Attorney.com.